Episode 144 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the brilliant British comedian, actor, writer and expert in the paranormal, Michael Benteen. With Harry Seacombe, Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, Michael co-founded The Goon Show, which was a massively successful BBC radio series in the 1950s. He wrote and starred in the BBC TV series It's a Square World in the 1960s and the children's teleseries Potty Time in the 1970s. Twice married, Michael had five children, three of whom predeceased him. Michael himself died in 1996 at the age of 74. My interview with him took place at his home in Surrey in 1993. Let's hear what you're up to at the moment. What are you working on what at the moment? What am I doing at the moment? Well, I'm getting ready to, uh, God willing, go to uh, Edinburgh Festival. I've been walking around the place doing my one-man offering, which is called From the Ridiculous to the Paranormal, which covers, in a light-hearted way, my rather eventful life, which has only been eventful involuntarily. I've never actually set out Let's go and do something eventful. That's not me. It suddenly happens, you know, out of the blue, usually. It started, really, with the old man discovering his interest in what is now loosely called the paranormal. Those days it was called the supernormal. And Dad had had two very extraordinary experiences. One was when uh, he was a boy, about 18. He came over this country when he was 13, and he was looked after by the man who was later to become my tutor at Eton. Bill Hope Jones's mother. So he knew Bill when they were both 14. And they made a pact when they were 14 that wherever Bill <laughs> became a master, my father, who knew he was going to have sons, would send them to school. And it turned out Bill became a beacon Eton. And so, as Dad happened to have two sons, we went to Eton. If he'd have been a beacon at Giggleswick Grammar School, we'd have gone there. Or if there had been a... a uh, tooting back comprehensive, we'd have gone there. It didn't really matter. It was to be with Bill. And what a wonderful guy he was. Yes, my father rather altered my life because, uh, because of a tonsillectomy, which I had when I was three, which was performed on the kitchen table, as they frequently were in the very early 1920s. It was performed by an excellent surgeon, who I'm sure would have done a first-class job had he not been pissed out of his mind at the time and took half my nasopharynx with him, so it looks like a battlefield. Hence the rather peculiar metallic voice that I have, because I speak from the diaphragm upwards to force the air through. And so that gave me uh, one of those <coughs> speech blocks until I was, ooh, I think, nearly 16. And my tutor said, it's ridiculous, the boy walks around with a notebook uh, asking for things and answering questions, and I think it's time he spoke properly. And my parents agreed, but they hadn't had much success. I mean, they'd tried jolly hard. And Bill found a, a marvellous um, speech trainer called Mr. Burgess, who was huge and had a sort of huge voice and a huge personality. And he said, I'm going to teach you to speak with a swing and a rhythm and a pause and a run. Swing and a rhythm and a pause and a run. And I thought, this guy has definitely lost his Elgin marbles. You know, he'd gone. Not at all. At first it was a bit weird. He found out that it's much easier for a stammerer to say no, because the mm sound is quite easy to enunciate. It's the hard consonants, the glottal sounds that's so difficult. And in this particular case, you would say no when you really wanted to say yes. So if a pretty girl said to you, would you like to come for a nice long walk in the country? I'd go, <laughs> no, you know, which made a relationship of a meaningful kind a bit difficult. However, when I was 16, I finally conquered this appalling stupidity, and uh, I suppose it was partly psychological and partly physical. And he taught me diaphragmic breathing, which was terribly useful, and he taught me how to overcome it. Did you have a miserable childhood as a result of this? No, I wouldn't defect? say so. Because well, I was very lucky. I had marvellous parents. And also, by the time I was about ten, father had become interested in the paranormal, as we would call it now. 
And so we had a constant flow of these weirdos through the house. 90% of them were either charlatans or self-deluded. One or two right villains. Mainly uh, good people who had got involved or involved themselves. In but by golly, when you got the genuine article, that really was something else. That really was something else. Dennis job was, was a scientist, essentially. That was his... My father was basically a mathematician, a bloody good one. But he qualified in engineering, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, then having built huge dynamos and vast engines and things like that, he fell in love with aeronautical engineering in its infancy. Was he Peruvian? Very much so. Yeah. Oh, very much so. And you were born there? No, I was conceived there. Right. Mother was English. Mother was English, came from Essex. And they went there after the First World War with my brother, who by that time was four. They met and married in 1915, and Tony turned up in 1960. And in 1921, they went to Peru to build the Peruvian Air Force because my uncle happened to be vice president of the Republic, Don Ricardo Lentin. I was conceived there. As soon as mother knew that she was on the way again, she persuaded Pop to come back to England. Uh, and uh, I was born in Watford. As Peter Ustinov said, to win the first prize in the lottery of life and be born British, you see. Which I'm very glad I was, actually, because I, I think it's a very interesting race to be born into. I've never really felt myself to be particularly Brit, or for that matter, particularly Peruvian. Which is your passport? Both, I have two. Father had no sense of humour at all, but he acquired one by a process of osmosis from Mother, who was bubbling with it. She was one of those marvellous terribly funny women whose humour has no bite in it she could go to the market come back and give her an impersonation of everybody she'd met dead accurate terribly funny and with no cruelty in it which is a great gift How did you go into show business? I left it really because the, the family had a, a, um, a series of very bad investments sadly, they weren't reckless investments they're just reinvestments that failed and so I saw that my parents were getting awfully short of money. And I'd had me coming up three years there, so I thought, well, I would really sooner come back and work with father. And I talked to him with my tutor, and he said, no, no, it's a question of money. I'll put you in for nothing. Mm. And I said, no, can't do that. So you left at 16, did you? I was about 16, 17, yes, just coming up 17. Had you done much show business there? Had you done much school? No, none, 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 because of the (laughs) type stammer. From Eton, I went to Ferguson Technical School. I wanted to come up rather more skilled on the drawing, which my brother, who was an artist, had taught me. I took a course in in journalism at the, the technical school and did shorthand, which I was useless at, and typing, which I was even worse, and realised that really I didn't need either. I could write anyway without any courses on it. And when I came up to uh, London University to take my exams for the university, they said, yes, we'd love to have you. Well, what do you want to read? And I said, aerodynamics. By that time, the war had started, and they said, you can't. Your father's Peruvian. So therefore, you are Peruvian. Mm. I said, I was born in Watford. He said, you're still Peruvian. And under the Defence of the Realm Act, anything of a scientific nature was selective as far as students went. So that went up the twist. Then I got a job in Fleet Street with a lovely firm called Keystone. I learned to be a camera operator, a laboratory assistant, a caption writer, and a storyboard maker, you know, thinking up ideas. And it was the last one I was doing terribly well in, where the great fire of London came, the fire raid, set alight the lab, set alight the library and everything else. And I'm sure the Ministry of, of Information thought I'd started it singling in the middle of the torch, I don't trust Peruvians. And so I was out of a job again. And I'd also been a very keen amateur drummer. And I thought I'd turn professional, met a very nice lad called Tony Sherwood, who was also waiting to get into the RAF. Because all this, I was trying to get into the RAF the whole time. And each time I volunteered, they said, oh, yes, fly an aeroplane too. Oh, jolly good, first class, yes. Went to eat, no, jolly good. Yeah, wait a minute, your father's Peruvian. I said, yes, I'm jolly proud of it. And they said, can't have non-Europeans in the Royal Air Force. So in all, I volunteered 11 times and was eventually 
the only job I could do was to go on the boards. It was the only job open. You couldn't get a job doing anything except as an actor. I don't know why. And I joined Robert Atkins, great Shakespearean actor. He was a lovely man. He was taking round uh, a season of Shakespeare in the open air, which, of course, he was famous for. And we started in Manchester. But you hadn't had any experience, though, had you? None at all. But then by that time, he was extremely lucky to get anybody mm. of my age. You know. So were you a spear holder or something? Well, yeah, I would remember this. I started off by holding a spear and looking very noble <laughs> in the background. Robert Hampton. Yes, it's, it's very good uh, looking noble, Michael, and you've got good legs for a pair of tights. I'll hand you that, lad. But he said, I like the voice because, you see, with the rather strange method of speaking, I sounded like a Shakespearean actor who was out of work. And anyway, um, he trusted me with some small parts as well. Did you get but, a liking for it then? No, not a liking. I've never liked show business. I find it earns me a living, and I don't have to hurt anybody doing it. And I don't have to steal anybody's material or jokes or anything else, because I think up my own, which are mainly based on life anyway. As far as the holding the spear went, it was a lovely story, perfectly true. Robert said, you're not reacting, Michael. You're supposed to react to what the other actors and actresses say. So I thought, oh, well, fine, you see. And I started to react. <laughs> little sneer, little, oh, well. <laughs> And so much so that the audience stopped looking at the other actors and actresses and concentrated on me. And I thought, oh, Robert will be pleased. And he wasn't. He said, oh, look at him, we had bloody some fighters who dance. He's a lovely man. I once came on uh, uh, with Helen Cherry. By this time, I'd graduated Demetrius, Lucencio, and Lorenzo, the juvenile lead in the Emotion of Venice. I was very thin in those days, and I looked tall, but I wasn't. Helen Cherry, the actress, beautiful girl, was playing uh, Jessica. And Robert said, you are too, too, too short for her. Uh, it's very good. Voice matching is excellent. You look splendid together. But you must raise yourself two or three inches. And I said, how do I do that? So he said, we put lifts in your boots. They are triangular wedges and cork. They put this in my Elizabethan high boots, you see, strapped up. And, of course, when I walked on, it looked as like I was walking into a high wind. And Robert shouted out from the stalls, You're supposed to come from Venice, not bloody Pisa. <laughs> <laughs> that was an extraordinary experience. Did all and, those experiences help you in, in the formation of the goons later on? No, not in the least. I was the first one to be a professional actor, of all of them. No, this was an extraordinary thing. I was working in the Merchant of Venice one night, and to service policemen appeared either side and I thought I wonder if they brought my papers because mm. <laughs> you know Robert had been with me to a Dastral house to see if he could use his influence he'd been a major in the First World War to get me in proving ambassador had been with me and everything and uh, I came off the stage and said are you looking for me Corporal he said we certainly are you are a deserter and Robert said how the hell can he be a deserter he's trying to get into the bloody RAF I'm trying to get out of it well, he's 65 days adrift. He didn't answer his call-up. Robert said, that's absurd. I've been with him to a dastral house. Deserters don't go to a dastral house trying to get in. And she said, besides, his name's outside the theatre. It's a unique name. She said, yes, we noticed that. The last two or three months we me passed it. And I said to Fred, I, I wonder if that's him. So I said, well, what do you mean? Of course it's me. Said, you had an E on the end. I said, yeah, but that's how it's pronounced, Bentine. It's Michael and Bentine together, you see. Same number of letters. And I said, we thought it was rather clever disguise. In the West End of London, they have this bloody thing on the theatre of Westminster. Yeah. However, they took me away in my Dublin hose. They wouldn't let me change. I must say, I was pissed off, and so was the cast, and so was Robert. And he got on to my father, and he got on to, who was a registered alien... He got on to my brother, who was in the Honourable Artillery Company. He got straight in because he was territorial. And as soon as I got behind bars, I thought, right. So I said, yo no hablo. Una palabra de inglés solamente castellano. Which is, I don't speak English. I speak Castilian Spanish. I'm Peruvian. This idiot said, you're bluffing. And I said, well, if you must have some bloody papers. Look them up. So he sent his minion away, and he came back. 
And he looks at it, he said, the immortal line, Jesus Christ, really, really is a bloody one, he said. So the ambassador came, it's 3 a.m. in the morning. The ambassador came, who was my Peruvian godfather, because I'd been christened in England. So there was a hell of a row, as you can imagine. And the next day, I got a call at my flat in St. George's Square, and it was the personal assistant to Group Captain Gilligan, who was the air officer commanding air crew reception centre, which I've been trying to get into. And could I go and have lunch with them? They wanted to apologise officially to the ambassador who couldn't come. So he said, would I go? So I said, yes, of course. Mainly because I wanted to meet him because he was captain of England and an Exitonian. And I met him, he was charming. And he said, we're awfully sorry, you know, there's a war on. I said, yes, I hadn't noticed 1942 by then. And then he said, when you were eating, where you were dry, Bob? Did I play cricket? Mm-hmm. I said, yes, I did. Play for your house? I said, oh, yeah. Play for the school? I said, no, I left just before. I'm just about going to play for the school. Mm-hmm. He said, gosh, he said, you a bowler or a batsman? So I said, I'm a bowler, sir. Who are you? What's all? I said, medium paced in swingers. He said, can you bowl the Chinaman? I said, five times out of six. He said, we must have you in the RAF. Mm-hmm. Now, I could have been Hitler's illegitimate godson or something, but that would have been it. Mm-hmm. I was in. So did you see any action? Yes, I saw a lot of action. I started as air crew, and we were held up. There was a bottleneck at the ITW, the initial training. And I would have avoided the grading school thing because I already had a license, you see. And so we were, about 100 of us were going over to Canada with another flight that had mm. already been through ITW and what have you, and grading school, and SFTS or whatever it was. And I was one of the last three cadets on the end of this flight. And I saw the orderly change the booster injection. We were given, a bo- we were given one when we arrived. When we went overseas, we were given a booster. ATTTAB, anti-tetanus, anti-typhoid, anti-paratyphoid, anti-typhus. And I think the bottle hadn't been treated. In other words, the heat treatment had failed on it, or it had never been put through it. So what we were given was the cultures of typhoid, paratyphoid, typhus, and tetanus. And within six hours, the first cadet was dead, the second cadet was paralyzed, and I was dying. And I felt myself leave my body, you know, actually leave the body. And uh, I had all the experience of the light and the whole bit. And when I came back, they were obviously working over me. You didn't have those things in those days. It was all, it was all pressure on the, the, the sternum and uh, injection of, with a long needle straight into the heart of adrenaline. And I heard these two padres arguing, because they both got stoles on. Well, one was a Catholic and the other was a Protestant. And the first one said, I'm sure he's one of ours. I'm his father's Peruvian. has to be a Stamford. The other one said, no, 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 see if he look his mother. I went, and they came over. And the first one said, are you feeling better, my son? Obviously the Catholic. The other one said, feeling better, lady. Obviously, the Protestants. I said, I'm alive. Piss off. Because, you know, when you've been in the waiting room with the Almighty, waiting for the interview, and been pulled back, you don't want to deal with the hired help. I wasn't being blasphemous Mm. at all. It's just that I suddenly saw the ridiculous nonsense of this arguing about which union you belong to. Did that make you make the most of life? from then on after that experience? I've always made the most of life. Mm. I don't think it had the slightest effect on me. The only effect it did have was a deleterious one as far as I was concerned. I couldn't fly anymore because I couldn't mm. see anymore. Mm. I would have needed a braille instrument panel and a guide mm. dog in the front turret. There was no way I could fly a plane except with glasses on and they were again that. So did you go back into civilian life after? No, Christ no. No, 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 no. So it took me about six months to get on my feet again. I mean, really, I went down to six and a half stone. You know, I was, my fighting weight was ten and a half stone. And I was a very fit guy, otherwise I'd never have survived. I was still at Air Crew Reception Centre, but in the sick quarters there. And Gilligan came to see me and he said, I'm afraid we're going to have to discharge you. I said, oh, no, not after all that bloody trouble getting in. And he said, wait a minute, you've got languages, haven't you? And I said, yes. So he said, what about intelligence? And I started laughing. And he said, why are you laughing? And I said, well, you had me arrested as a deserter. Now you're saying to me, would you like to go into British intelligence? It's a bit absurd. And, and he laughed. I must say. 
However, I went to our selection board and there was an army captain who was one and two RAF men and we chatted in French and chatted in a bit of Spanish. And the army captain said, well, I don't think your French is quite good enough for what we particularly had in mind for you, but you could still be with air crew and you could teach them the techniques that I've perfected. And it was there in Eve. But he was captain then. He became a friend of yours, didn't he? Yes, he was a wonderful man. Mm. He walked out of Colditz. Mm. He'd done a home run from Colditz, mm. which was a staff lager. And when he came back, he went to see Churchill, and Churchill gave him a sort of capitulation, you know, to mm. set up whatever he wanted. And he and another escapee called Tom Jarrett started MI9, which never existed before, you know. Evasion escape, and I was one of their yeah. first people in it. Then during the war, I, as I spoke through in French, I went with the Poles, naturally. Mm. They put me with the Poles, the Czechs, and the Belgians. I was with the Belgians. Did you leave British went intelligence when the war ended? Is that what happened? I hope so, yes. <laughs> I signed the yeah. Official Secrets Act. Right. And then what happened uh, after that? Where did you go to? Into show business straight away? I started with young Tony Sherwood, who had, right. we had done this sort of act together mm. and playing piano and drums, which we played mm. well, let's face it. Mm. He was a great boogie pianist. Mm. I wasn't bad. And uh, did little bits of nonsense, I think. And we went to the windmill and got the, the job. That's where I met Seacom at the same audition. He was doing the same thing. <laughs> and uh, we were introduced to each other. And the first thing you said to any young man of your own age, you see, what were you in? Because he might know what happened mm. to Charlie or Fred, was it? Because yeah. you'd lost touch, you see. And he said, I was a gunner. What were you? And I said, Air Force. He said, Luftwaffe. I said, no, Royal. And I thought, I like this guy. And Tony had to go for a piano lesson. So we went off, and we only had half ground between us. He said, what do we do, have a brunch or go and see the cartoon films? I said, mm. go and see the cartoon films. Mm. And from that moment, we became friends, which we've been all our lives. So how and when were the goons formed? Well, the goons really came to, fr uh, to form themselves for mutual protection, really, into um, a group at Jimmy Grafton's pub in, uh, in Strutton Ground in Victoria. And Jimmy I'd met through a friend, a friend who was his cousin or something. Jimmy was in First Airborne, Second Airborne, one of them. And he was the guy that swam the Neckar to tell the um, Airborne to get out of Arnhem. Mm. A very brave man, a hell of a nice guy. And he was writing scripts for, I think, a cousin of his who was called Derek Roy, who was a comedian at the time, very successful. And uh, we got on very well together, and I brought Harry down to his pub to meet him. We, we got on even better. And Harry brought Spike in. We all played the windmill at some time. Mm. Then later we brought in Peter, who also mm. played the windmill. But the word goon came from one. It was an Edgar Seeger cartoon, Popeye, had these characters like Ohms you know, mm. that had big hairy arms and spoke in soundtracks. <laughs> and it was the voice of Goofy. Oh, the bell. And the old power rings, because we were all cartoonists. Yeah. The word goon, from my point of view, all my Kriegi Gefangen, in other words, prisoners of war referred to the German guards as goons you know as goon in the block meant German guard in the block what's your happiest memory of the goons era oh I think just falling about laughing together mm. once it became a great success I, well, I lost a lot of interest in it because mm. I'm essentially a pioneer I wanted to do the mm. bumblies which mm. were another, uh, little spacemen so I was so fed up with everything that came from space wanted to destroy the earth mm. surely somebody might come down and have, mm. have a bit of fun so many years before E.T., I produced the Bumblies. And uh, they were wildly successful. I went to Australia for two years. Was I, was, I was first goon in America, mm. first goon in Australia, first goon pioneering stuff. I'd already been in the West End of London doing my chairback act and sink pump for 32 months before the goons even went on the air. Did you not all fall out when you pulled out of the goons? Though? I don't think so. It wasn't us that fell out. It was the BBC that mixed mm. the pudding. There's mm. a hell of a difference between the two. Mm. You stayed close friends with the, the other three? Oh, I think so, yes. Most of the time, it's a question of we don't see each other because our paths just don't cross anymore. Mm. 
But uh, I'm always very, very happy to hear of their successes, and they're always happy to hear of mine. How often do you see Spike and Harry now? Well, the last time I saw Spike was down at the New Romney Hythe and Dimchurch Railway, and he hadn't been too well. He'd had one of his one of his down periods, and, mm. and you know, he gets very depressed. Harry, I haven't seen for about... Well, he rang me on Christmas Day in America, and we fell about laughing, as always. And I haven't seen him since. But we're about due to get together again, I think. You have sort of regular reunions? Oh, no, no. Because, you know, we've got so many mutual interests anyway. And uh, we we meet up with each other doing this or Mm. that or the other. All great joy. Incomprehensible to anyone else. Mm. Because we go, what about that? Come on, we're gone. Do you still play the old tapes and listen to them and have a good chuckle? No, no, I don't think so. I think think the whole joy, I mean, the BBC destroyed all all my tapes, 41 of them, Mm. when I left. But what happened was I was working in America and Peter and Spike rang me and said, you are coming back, aren't you? I said, yeah, sure, if you want me. Though I had finally made the breakthrough there. And I thought, well, I can't let them down. Clementine said, don't be an idiot, stay. Mm. And I thought, well, I don't know, no, I'd better go back. And I went back, and I walked in the studio, and there's a new goon I'd never seen before, which the BBC hierarchy had put in. As soon as they found it was a successful formula, they were going to put all the young comics in. And I thought, screw that, because I'd put all my publicity into it. And I talked today with the boys, and they said, no, whatever you want, Mike, you know. The other thing was that I'd always had a theory that four goons was one too many, because the magic number is three. You know, three on a match, three musketeers, mm. the three of this, the three of that, lucky threes, all over. And uh, I think I was proved right. But uh, I didn't expect the BBC to destroy every show before I left and then suddenly find the one after I'd left. You know. mm. But they were a very peculiar hierarchy in those days. I don't think they've changed that much nowadays. Were you close to Peter Sellers right up until his death? Yes, I think so. Pete was, uh, uh, in a strange way, a loner because he was dominated by his mother, who was a very nice lady, who was determined he'd be a great star, which he became. And she pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. I never had a crossword with Pete. All these rubbish books written about him, for different reasons, I think, people who didn't understand him, or people who were resentful, like his son was resentful. What's your fondest memory of him? Just falling about laughing. If you ask any of us what the fondest memory of each, each other is, it's essentially when we were putting it together and doing it. You know, for instance, we had a, a strange saying like, let's have a nice cup of closed. Now, that happened to me. I was driving up from Dorset long before the M roads, and it took forever. It took about five and a half hours to get from Dorset. And I thought, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it. And I finally made it. All the way up, I was dying for a cup of tea, and everything was pulling air for a nice cup of closed. You see, we are open day and closed. This one of the finest Devonshire cream teas closed. No matter where you went, the bloody lot was closed. And I finally arrived there, and uh, the first thing I said was, I've had a nice cup of clothes. And it became, it's all those in-gangs that happened with just, it was them and us. Mm. I mean, the BBC hierarchy loathed us. When did you last see Peter Sellers? When we were at Isha, he rang up one night, he said, well, one afternoon, he said, um, Mike, I'm at Royal Lodge, which I thought was a new hotel somewhere. You know, I said, oh, I never heard of that one. And he didn't mention it. He said, uh, could you come over to dinner tonight? And I said, well, it's awfully short notice. I have to ask Clementina to see what she's doing. So she said, yeah, great. We, we love being together. And he said, oh, good. Now, you go to Windsor. He said, oh, well, before that, I'll put someone on, you see. And this voice said, hello, Michael. I thought this Princess Margaret's voice I said, oh, hello, ma'am, how are you? And she said, so glad you're coming tonight. Mother will love it. And there was the old Queen Mum, who we'd met many times. She, said, she loved showbiz. And Princess Margaret and Lin- Lindley and Lady Sarah. And they'd never heard the prose stories, that all the mad things. And we really spent dinner falling about screaming with laughter, remembering all the mm. idiot things that had happened to us. And that was the last time I saw him. And I was absolutely shaken rigid he looked much older than I do now. You know, he was beginning to lose his hair, which he always had very thick hair. Did he know he was going to die? Um, I think he had a bloody good idea of it because he'd told me 12 years before, he said, I picked the music for my funeral. This was after the cardiac arrest. 
Because I was a bloke that interested him in the paranormal. Mm. He'd never heard of the paranormal. Even then I called it the supernormal. He said, it was after the eight cardiac arrests at the Cedars of Sinai. And he said, uh, I've chosen the music for my funeral, he said, for the committals. I said, oh, for Christ's sake. I remember we were all going to see a man and a woman, you know, the da 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 that one. And uh, again, it was Princess Margaret and Gladlock and Blake Edwards, but not Julie, because she was in America. And uh, I didn't know that they were going to get married or anything, and mm. the slightest idea. And we were chatting about different things, what have you. And Pete took me into the, the study. He was in Half Moon Street then. And he said, uh, I want to tell you, I've chosen the music for my committal. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, you know, mm. live for years yet. And I said, as a matter of interest, what, what, what hymn did you choose? And he said, no, I didn't choose a hymn. I've chosen In the Mood. He said, you mean Glenn Miller's In the Mood? He said, yes. I said, not the bloody awful recording we made with you up in the studio. He said, yes. So I said, you mad bastard. You never get away with it. You see, thought he was joking. Now, he was a strange man. He, if he was going to do a practical joke, which he loved, but they were never harmful, but they were always funny. If he was going to play it on Spike and Harry, he'd tell me. Mm. If he was going to play it on Harry and I, he'd tell Spike. If it was Spike and I, he'd tell Harry. So in this case, it was on Spike and Harry, so he told me. And uh, 12 years later, they rang me up. I was doing a series going around the villages, how to save your village or something. And they said, Peter Sellers died this, uh, just after lunch this afternoon. I said, oh, shit. We'd very much like you to come to this memorial thing, so. Harry rang me and he said, uh, do you want to go? I said, not particularly, but I'll go because, you know, you mm. must show some sort of... Mm. Never thought mm. about this at all. Then the Reverend Hesketh got up. He's very much a society a clergyman. And he said, I, uh, I don't think he knew Peter very well. He said, our dear friend Peter Sellers has made a strange request to me uh, for the music for his committal, I thought. <laughs> music? his committal I thought and nobody else was reacting because I hadn't even told Clementina because it was just Pete and I he said um, yes uh, now the music may sound a little strange to our ears I saw Harry looked at me and I went and Spike went run, 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 and I said <laughs> and they were instantly interested to know what the hell Pete had chosen you see. and he said uh, but so it must mean a lot to us mm-hmm. there were only 33 of us there it says, no, in the name of the Father, and off goes the coffin, down mm. through the doors, to be incinerated, you see. And as it slides off, and I saw the others go, and we all stuffed handkerchiefs in our mouths because we were going to go. We got outside and clung onto each other with our shoulders heaving, hysterical with laughter. And I heard this Burke, from, I think it was a BBC man, say, and as the three surviving goons, overcome with emotion and grief, mm. the passing of their dear loved brother, cling to each other for mutual support in their agony. And I heard Harry say, you Burke. <laughs> that was Peter. Would you say that the goons period was the happiest time of your life? Oh, Lord, no, it was a very happy time. I think it's the same for all of us, felt the same. I think the boys have said when it became a, a great burden and a great success, you know, it was an enormous burden around Spike and it was a terrific burden, sort of... Because everybody wanted to do something else and just be known for the goon show. You know? Oh, we've had so many happy times, mm. Jesus. I mean, we're all family men and uh, but, but, family occasions and things. But on the... I mean, apart from Peter Sellers, you've had a lot of personal tragedy as well, and yet... You've maintained your career as a comic as well. How, how do you do that when you've had so much personal tragedy? I think when you've been brought up that life is really a continuing process. People say, well, even in the afterlife. I say, well, that presupposes a before life. And whatever is before, there's ahead of you. The future's becoming the present and the past while we're talking. I said, no, I believe in a parallel set of dimensions. And I think it's all an academic point. The evidence that I've had over the years, discounting all the phonies and all the self-deluded, so overwhelming that really there isn't much of an explanation other than that, other than the power of the human mind 
through which it is experienced mm. anyway. So you just don't let it get you down? Is that? I don't see the point, because um, the best thing you can do, if you watch animals, animals teach you an awful lot, especially the non-domesticated animal. And you see an animal losing its mate or its young, it howls or makes the appropriate noise according to its species and gets the shock out of it. It also gets the young away from whatever the threat was that, that caused the loss of the, of the partner or one of the cubs or one of the whatever. And uh, with the highly developed mammals, dolphins, whales, elephants, I've talked to people who are really experts and they say the same thing. They experience this, the same grief we do and then get on with the living because that is the essential process of, of survival, of the race. But if you, if you contain the grief and hug it to you, it's got to be for some strange reason like guilt or uh, just that you enjoy being the centre of attractions, the grief-stricken. But when your living is being a comedian, you have to go out, the audience will already think, Paul Burst just lost the universe. And you've got to get that on top of the normal difficulty of getting them. It isn't you become hard. What you do is you set that to one side and get on with what you have to do for the survival of your species. You wake up in the remote part of the world, sometimes alone, and you think, oh, shit. And then you think, oh, God, what? And then you think, wait a minute. And you sit back and open yourself, and there they are. Mm. You visualise them. And people say, you're not going to tell me that you speak to your children. I said, frequently, I also speak to my father, my mother. I've never claimed they answer me. But I do speak to them, which is halfway there. Mm. And I very often hear within my head a wise piece of advice. Or I hear their laughter again. And uh, I don't think it would help. Supposing you, you pass over and you come back to somebody that you love very much and you're trying to say, look, I'm, look, I'm fine. I'm, for Christ's sake, I'm all right, you know, and they can't see you or hear you. Can you imagine what a bastard that must be? So what do you think happens to people after they die? Well, I learned as a scientist you cannot destroy energy. You can only change its form. Now, as we're using mathematics today, with 11 dimensions at least, and we can only visualize four. We can't even visualize the fifth dimension. Yet we're calculating in, in astrophysics, they're going into godness, aren't they? You're looking at energy fields. What we think of solids are really energy fields. We don't even know the effect of other energy fields upon them, like solar energy, solar wind, magnetic fields. It's only recently that somebody's had the bright idea of investigating corona discharge from power lines and the effect on people. And they found that very intense magnetic fields cause disorientation of the mind. It can't be good. So what we're really talking about is forms of energy. You don't love somebody because of their physical presence, per se. You love them because of the quality of their energy field, if you like to put it that way, call it personality. The Greeks called it the pneuma, or the nose, and my own evidence that I've seen under laboratory conditions over the last, well, consciously I became involved in it when I was 10. I probably didn't start to evaluate it till I was about 17 or 18. But by that time, I'd had enough experiences to convince me that there is far more than is explicable by physical science as we know it Mm. today. As yet is the word. I think what we're looking at are fields of energy that we, as electrochemical beings, can detect and appreciate and feel. The sort of things we say, the state of ecstasy, the state of religious ecstasy, the state of mystical enjoyment, if you like, when you're listening to some great piece of music and you're going, where are you going? What is the effect on you? It's not just endomorphins or whatever they are. It isn't just pheromones going around calling you from a great distance come and mate there's something much deeper than that and if you're a creative artist you can see on other levels but then you see all children do it, it isn't some yes I have been chosen by God to see deeply into the balls what it is is every kid can do it except that we don't encourage it but the people I've worked with like rainforest Indians Aborigines in Australia 
and uh, Middle Eastern Badawi, they use it. They use it the whole bloody time. It's part of the survival mechanism because they live in a much more natural environment. Having lost a son and two daughters, you must have spent a lot of time wondering, why me? Oh, no, I don't think it's anything to do with a why me. It's a question of the failure of an aeroplane in the air and two lots of cancer. You can't say, why me? Why them? No, it, we don't know the circumstances. I think you've been desperately unlucky in that sense. Well, what the hell is luck? Cells interacting, cells going mad? No, I mean, I've just been told that I've got a condition that you could say that. Big excitement, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't... I, I go through all the tests and everything, and we'll combat it with this or with that or the other. I don't see why people get so bloody uptight. I've been very near death, remember, very near death, with the injection alone. That, I mean, I did die. There's no question about it. I died of the heart stop, the restart. You never lose your apprehension at the method because that's part of your survival mechanism. And you will probably go on struggling if you were drowning or if you were, you know, trying to fight for life or something else. But when you're 71 years old, I don't think you struggle quite as much as you would when you were 19, which is when you hit me the first time. Secondly, I suppose, because I believe in survival, because you can't destroy energy. So the academic point is, does it retain its individual entity or does it go back into a general field of force? It doesn't matter one way or the other. There's sweet nothing you can do about it. And when there's nothing you can do about it, your best plan is to accept it. But, I mean, the point is that uh, by the time one's finished with this, that, or the other treatment, I mean, I've seen a lot of my family die with cancer. I saw my mother die. I saw two daughters die. I saw an aunt die. And uh, I've seen an awful lot of death under violent circumstance. And provided one can control the, the pain mechanisms, which are high, and one is allowed to make the change in reasonable comfort, I don't see anything to be frightened of. There are people who are bloody terrified by the thought of death. It's the mechanism that can be alarming. But then my own experience is that you don't even really know when you actually are dying. There's so much going on, and then suddenly the severance, and you think, I don't hurt anymore. My God, I think I'm dead. And then I was pissed off. I tell you, I was very pissed off because all that time trying to get into the RAF, and they'd kill me. Do you worry about your health or being impeded by bad health? I don't think so, no, not particularly. You just get on with life. I've done every bloody thing that anybody can do. I've got nothing left to prove. I haven't really done anything that I think did anybody a great deal of harm. And strangely enough, people keep saying to me that I've never even met before, that apparently they have benefited in some way, either from what I wrote or the very simple stuff. Uh, or what uh, I did, or in some way it gave them pleasure or a bit of hope or relief from some form of grief. That's why I'm dead against um, comedy being used purely for shock and hate, 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 sneer, 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 mm. sneer. You know, cut down, cut down, cut down, destroy, destroy, mm. destroy. I don't think that's what it's for. Mm. I think it's the greatest gift we have on the face of the earth, a sense of humour. Would you like to come back in another form? No, thank you. I, I don't think so. I don't think I could go through all that shitting in the nappies mm. bit again. Mm. Or going through puberty and... Uh, no, thank you, no. I think the great joy in life, not being an intellectual snob, because I don't consider myself particularly intellectual, but the acquisition of knowledge, or at least the acquisition of learning and the assessment of the learning and distilling it into knowledge is probably the most rewarding thing on the planet. Mm. It's a marvel. I would have been blissfully happy to have been a dog. That would have been my idea of absolute total heaven. I imagine you can't sit still for long. You're always working on something. Is that right? Yes. There are so many projects go through one's head. Not necessarily money-making projects, you know. For instance, um, I'm fascinated by the Battle of Jutland because there's a controversy as to whether we lost it or won it. You're well into your railways, aren't you? Tell us about your position. Oh, I love railways. I love steam, you see. Mm. But, you know, I've got electric railways, but my favourite uh, steam railway, of course, is the one that I remember 
as a boy. My father knew Howie very well, Captain Howie, who built it. So you're teaching your enthusiasm of railways to your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, are you? No need to teach. They just took mm-hmm. one look and fell in love with them, because they are. I mean, they're, they're good models, and they're, they're interesting. I'm not putting them on steam yet, because steam can, can hurt you, you know, a child. It's not a good thing for a child to play with. So they're using the electric uh, model. I mean, that can't give them a shock, because it's only minute voltage and a microamperage. They won't hurt them. Yeah, they're getting good, you know. They know how to lay out track, and... All my switches, the points, are all manual, mm-hmm. so that they have to switch them. It isn't just a question of mm-hmm. pushing something. So when they, they come to it. stay, they must have a great time here with you. Oh, they have a ball. Yeah. They have mm-hmm. a, in fact, they scream and yell when they have to go. But it's good fun. It's marvellous fun. Yeah. You also have a place in America, don't you? Why do you have a place in America? Well, um, firstly, it's what we call our slum in the sun. It's a very small place. You don't have to have some mansion, they couldn't afford it anyway. And uh, we got it when a pension matured. And it was just at the time that the, the rules changed, so you could, in fact, buy a place overseas. I never saw the point of smuggling money out and doing all that rubbish, because it's stupid, you know. Because I can go and work there anyway. And I've been working in America on and off for years. And never for very long, I think the longest was about four months, 1951. Oh, the first good in America, too. We can just about afford it. It's the perfect place to work, to write books, because I've written about 14 books, four of which, to my absolute amazement, were bestsellers. I mean, one was a runaway, the others were were bestsellers, technically bestsellers, and they were good. I think the most I sold was about 27,000 in uh, hardback, something like that. The latest ones just sold 6,700 in hardback, which, you know, at, at the sort of prices they're charging now, He's not bad. You know. Is this the autobiography? Yeah. It's, um, when I write an autobiography, it doesn't glorify anything I did. It states boldly what happens and how I reacted to it and how others reacted to it. And they're usually very funny because the humour springs from truth. It doesn't, it's not tortured, drag in a, a joke or something. And if it's sad, it's sad. If it's, if it's stark raving horror, it's stark raving horror, you know. But uh, I think what it is, is that I write a lot of uh, books that need reference. Now, in order to get the same reference facility that I have at the small public library in Palm Springs, I get, I would have to have a reader's ticket to the British Museum, the Ashmolean, and the Bodleian. And I would have to be able to get books from them, because I can get the books Mm. sent to me. Either facsimiles or the actual book. I was astounded. I needed, I was writing Condor on the Cross, which was the history of my, uh, my family in Peru, but written as a novel. And I had to, virtually, I would have had to have gone to the British Museum. They would have had to have contacted Sweden. The Swedes would have had to have sent 17 monographs by Linquist. And I wouldn't have been allowed them anyway. I would have been allowed to read them in the... They sent them to me. They bloody had facsimiles and sent them to me. I couldn't believe it. It's the greatest technical reference library in the world is the Library of Congress. How much time do you spend in America and how much time over here? Well, it sort of vaguely depends, doesn't it? It can be any amount of time, but, I mean, obviously one's coming back and forth. But uh, over a period of, I don't know, four or five months of one's year, then I do all my research basically here, and then my specialised research I do there as I go along writing. So therefore, using word processors, I can write a book in approximately a year. The, the autobiography took me two years. Do you never go back to Peru? Yes, about once every five or six years. But at the moment, with the Sendero Luminoso, it's been, my family have said, don't come, because it's, it's such a hell of a hoo-ha, and we can't go anywhere, and what have you. But they come here a lot, and we go there a lot. Do you still get recognised a lot, wherever you are? To my amazement, yes, but I never know why, because I haven't really been on the air. I, I know I'm on the air on satellite at the moment, Saturdays and Sundays, 7am in the morning, doing the potties. I think perhaps having done a lot of children's shows. The other thing is, and to my mind I can't think why, the voice is distinctive, and people will often turn and say, I thought it was you. And I think, well, why? I mean, I've just got an ordinary voice like everybody else has. But it has a metallic 
quality because of the diaphragmic breathing. How satisfied are you with your career? Well, I don't mean satisfied. I don't think any creative artist is ever satisfied with anything he's ever done. You think, mm. oh, God, I could have done it so much better if I'd have done so-so. But you say you don't have a lot of ambition. No, I've never, had, I've never been an ambitious man. The, the only, I, I knew I'd play the Palladium many times, and I have played it many times. And I've played all the top theatres, and, you know, I've had plum parts in Shakespeare and things, and I've looked at it and thought, well, yes, very interesting, yes, I enjoyed that, yes. Yes, it was quite interesting. It's mainly what you learn from it. I don't think you learn from your successes, you learn from your mistakes. And I think that's important. They can be very un- uncomfortable, they're never more than that. Do you have many regrets? I don't think so, I don't see the point. What, what on earth could you do about it? What you do is you say, I'm not going to make that mistake again. Oh, I'm certainly going to be very careful about not hurting that person. I never even realised I was hurting him at the time. That's the only sort of mistake that one has that you can say, oh dear, that, that was a pity. And often unavoidable. There was nothing you could do about it. And in retrospect, with hindsight, you still can't find an answer as to how you could have acted other than the way you acted because you were brought up with certain types of guidance on certain types of, not so much principles, but I suppose they were truisms, really. You know, I mean, we were all being brought up as cannon fodder, a whole lot of us. Never occurred to me to do anything else but volunteer. And when I was in Folkestone as a little boy, I don't remember one parent of any of my friends who was whole. It was always one eye gone or both eyes gone or one arm gone or three fingers gone, half a leg or no legs at all. Because they were all relics of the First World War, you see. And yet these amazing men, and Folkestone was very much a retirement zone, and the amazing thing was to see them on crutches or in a wheelchair or, or staggering along with a stick, and, or perhaps blind even, still playing with their kids, playing football with their kids and cricket with their kids. And you looked at it and you thought, my God, what a stupid, idiotic, and totally profitless exercise war is. And at the same time, look at the amazing courage of these people who suffered from it. And that was a lesson in itself. Do you not think of yourself as a very courageous man? Oh, Christ, no, I'm born coward. No, no, devout coward by religion. No, I don't think I'm even remotely courageous. I've seen situations in which I came out of them thinking, how the hell did I do that? That was amazing. I think it's because when the crunch comes, you never have time to think anyway. But you're bound to come up against a situation that's going to floor you, no matter what. I talked to one of the men that I've, I've always respected, and I had a deep love for him, and that was Leonard, uh, Leonard Cheshire. And I'd seen him in the, in, in the war, and I visited Scampton, and, uh, you know, playing in the mess of football with his hat and... And, you know, we, really everybody was pissed on high spirits rather than, you know, you didn't have that amount of money anyway. And the stuff wasn't available to get drunk on. You would get sick on rather bad beer. That was about it. And then later, having known of his whole career and having known the people that he flew with, you look at him and this extraordinarily spiritual man with deep convictions and still got the same colossal sense of humour. And I said to him, frankly, sir, because I never called him Leonard, ever. I called him sir. He said, oh, for God's sake, Leonard. I said, no, I can't. Because to me, he was the archetype pilot. He was a superb pilot. Martin was probably the greatest bomber pilot of the war, Mickey Martin, who was killed, he was an air marshal, running for a taxi. Bus hit him. And he was in a coma for weeks. You think, I don't believe it. But, you know, uh, these men were exceptional men who would have been exceptional men under any circumstance. And I said to him, did you ever feel fear? And he said, every time I took off, I was in a state of total dither, but... And he said, you felt the same. You were much more afraid of showing it to your comrades. And what about you? Is there much you fear? Well, I think there are certain things one fears. 
I'm not in love with pain. I've had a lot. Mm. And not as much as Christ. I mean, some of my mates. Oh, Jesus, I, I, I was in the hospital this morning and I, there, were, there was a child there that was going through the most, most appalling time and something happened and fell about laughing. Mm. And I thought, Jesus, bloody Christ. And I, I've seen so much amazing tolerance of suffering. Very often, when it, when it becomes too much, and the person is literally yelling their head off, whatever, mm. they're not even aware it's happening. You know, it's, it's beyond mm. their... It, it's a reaction of, of the ganglia in somewhere, a nervous reaction. To the but I've seen an awful lot of suffering and horror. I've said, boy, have I seen some horror. Uh, Belson, I couldn't believe. I couldn't believe. I still can't believe that a civilized nation, and I mean, I was at school with Germans, I used to mm. fence against the Duke of Hesse. Uh, not because he was the Duke of Hesse, but he happened to be a very good fencer. I think I beat him once, to my amazement. But I loved fencing. It's an individual sport. Mm. Interesting, wonderful art, and very quick reactions and things. More than boxing. And can just be bloody painful. And I was fascinated to think that such intelligent men, a nation that produced Schiller, mm. Goethe, and Steiner, these great thinkers and philosophers, could behave in this sub-bestial, <laughs> sub-human, but with total logic. They weren't mad. Do you worry about the way the world's going now? Do you worry about it for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren? I, I can't imagine there's been a period of history in which the grandparent didn't. Mm. Somehow they survive. We've got to get off the material treadmill because that's controlling the world and that's no bloody good. And we've got to learn common sense about birth control. And we have got to learn common sense about euthanasia. Do you find yourself lecturing them on that front? Or no, do you I don't lecture. Learn? I'd never lecture. If there's been a... I give chats, but mm. I say, look, understand, I'm not a guru. I don't want to be a guru. I'm merely telling you about what I have experienced. Because the world's divided into people who've read about it in books and people it's happened to. The things I'm talking to you tonight have happened to me. They're worth talking about because they were somewhat strange. Do you believe you'll be reunited with your family one day? I sincerely hope so. Mm. And I sincerely hope so with all my pets as well. Mm. If I'm not not knocked down flat by my dogs, I won't want to, um, you know, I guess I'm sorry, mate. You'll have to send me back. That's not in the deal. <laughs> How would you like to be remembered one day? I would love people to, when they think of me, if they smiled, I'd be very happy. Mm. That would be a lovely, uh, lovely epitaph, that, I think. You know, I've, uh, my favourite epitaph was the tombstone, which had, uh, was on top of an alcoholic's grave which said, this one's on me. <laughs> greatest bloody one of all time. I love that. I love that. I, I really do think that if people smiled and in some way felt for a fraction of time more relaxed, a little bit better, slightly more merciful, whatever, because of something I'd done, then I wouldn't have wasted my life, you know. But who the hell is to know? It's this searching for, mortality, for immortality that is such a, a stupid uh, occupation. What do you seek from the rest of your life? Uh, I, I'm perfectly happy to take it day by day. I would love to see a solution in Bosnia. I would love to see people not getting murdered by floods in Bangladesh. I would love to see the Irish question settled and those nice people on both sides stop killing each other and hating each other. And I would love to see people really feeling more love for each other because I think that's... If you don't have that, you're not living. That's not what life's... Life's not about the sort of thing going on now. Do you think you'll stay in this house now? I don't know if, if, if that's what's mm. going to happen. That's what's going to happen, mate, you know. Mm. I think you become very fatalistic up to a point. I think also you probably tend to... Uh, Try and be protective. I've done that all my life. You can fall into a trap of pessimism now. That's not good. 
And the more negative, the more negatively people think, the more chances has of happening. So that's difficult. And I do believe in healing. I believe you've had the experience, we all have, of being with somebody who draws from you. So at the end of half hour, you're gone, you know. You're, you're, literally the virtue's gone out of you. But at the same time, conversely, if that can happen to you, you can give energy to people. Mm. And I've noticed you can walk on a stage in fear and trembling, which is quite normal, it's just a hyperadrenaline. Mm. You go on, and the audience comes with you, and you start to draw energy from them, and they freely give it to you. And at the end of it, you're on high, and it takes you six or seven hours to unwind. Are you still friends with Prince Charles? Yes, he's a lovely man. How often do you see him and speak to him? Oh, not, not terribly often, but uh, when we do, it's usually uh, something, uh, something very funny. He's, he's a very private man, and I, I think he has a lot of the shyness of his grandfather, because it must have been, I think, the most awful words that must have ever been spoken to King George VI when he was Duke of York is, you are now the king, because he suffered from stammering, and I know what it's like, and I thought he did a bloody marvellous job. So did the old QM, she was marvellous. They were bloody wonderful, both of them. And I think if this country continues with a monarchy, and I think it'd be awfully foolish not to, because it's been going on a long time, why break the record? Mm. They'd be awfully lucky if they do get this extremely nice, intelligent, funny, caring man as a monarch. He'd make a bloody good king. 